Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A week from tonight, cannabis is going to be legal in Canada. A week from today, chances are you, uh, and I'm not being funny, chances are you are going to at some point during the day or some point during the evening, walk along the street, be out in your neighborhood, whatever, and you are going to catch that smell and it is going to be totally fine. Want to walk down the street, want to sit on your front porch, whatever, all cool. According to the law, it's all going to be good. And you've been hearing about this for months. Now, this is not news to you. It is the Trudeau government signature legislation that they have been pushing through now for a long, long time. But all of a sudden, in the last less than a week, we have suddenly started, and I haven't seen a lot of this before, sporadically, but not much, but suddenly we are starting to see a lot more concerns raised from health concerns to impaired driving concerns to black market concerns, all kinds of things that suddenly people are bringing up as going, huh, wait a second, what is going to happen? Well, tomorrow in Hamilton, a roundtable on the impact of the impending cannabis legislation is going to be held. One of the folks who's behind this joins us now. He has been on the show a number of times before. He's a friend of this show. His name is Dr. James McKillop. He's the Peter Boris Chair in Addictions Research, the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research, the co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, and a professor of psychiatric and behavioral neurosciences at McMaster. Uh, Dr. James McKillop, thanks for doing this, doctor. Appreciate it. Great Scott. Uh, as we get closer, and I say I'm starting to see more and more people raise some concerns, is there any consensus that you see about what we should expect? And, and I mean, you're obviously talking from the medical field, but has any consensus developed about what's going to happen? I don't think there is consensus. I, I think that there's a lot of healthy discussion and debate, and I think that all the activity that you referenced is people are really appreciating just how wide the ramifications of cannabis legalization are right now. They're realizing that it applies to people's social lives. It applies to their work lives in terms of um, employer policies. It's going to affect the police force. It's going to affect uh, virtually all aspects of society, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. It, just in the last couple of days, I read that the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, the Canadian Pediatric Society, among others, uh, have been certainly much more loudly than I've seen before expressing their concerns about the effects of cannabis, particularly on kids under 25. You and I have talked about this, especially the younger users on the show before. Um, one of the recurring shouts, if you want to call it that, that we're hearing now from these groups is that despite what seems to have been the message all along, this is not entirely harmless and people should not be confused with the idea that this is a completely harmless diversion. Absolutely right. So I fall into that camp, um, in terms of thinking that people really need to know that just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. Alcohol is legal. Alcohol has risks. Tobacco is legal. Tobacco has risks. I think that uh, a lot of the professional societies and a lot of um, professional um, physicians, psychologists, nurses uh, are, are speaking up loudly now to make sure that with the passage of this law and as the law comes into effect, there aren't uh, widespread and systematic misunderstandings about the risks associated with cannabis. Is it too late 
for this though? I mean, I, I don't know that if any of you doctors or other people had said this before, if it would have changed anything, quite frankly, but is it too late for this message to get out? Well, to be frank, we have been saying this for a long time. I think that what has happened is that as we've got, as, as the data got closer, um, there's much more attention as people become more aware of this tectonic shift that's happening. I, I think that certainly there have been um, public awareness campaigns. Um, some of your listeners may have received a flyer that I received in my mailbox about the Canada, Cannabis Act. I think that the, the government is, is trying to promote uh, the correct information, but I, I think that the reality is uh, these are difficult messages to communicate because they're not black and white. They're not, um, you know, reefer madness style, uh, you know, messages of, um, you know, terrible harms that could happen. Um, the, the contrast is, for example, the opioid epidemic, where actually one can make very, very clear um, recommendations. You know, right now, illegal opioids are very, very dangerous, especially because of things like uh, fentanyl and other um, high-toxicity opioids that are in, in the drug supply. When it comes to cannabis, it's more complicated because uh, there are risks, um, but in, it, it is, compared to some of the other drugs that are out there, a, uh, a lower risk in, uh, on many indicators. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Dr. James McKillop, who, among other things, is a professor of psychiatry at McMaster. He's the co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. A week from tonight, cannabis is going to be legal in this country. We're talking about some of the issues around this. And Michael, just, or uh, Pat, James, just before the commercial, you raised something that I loved that you mentioned, because you, you talk about the reefer madness thing. And this is a this is a bit of a problem because anybody like you or I or anyone else who raises any issues about this now, now you may get away with it because you're an expert in this field, but anyone else raises an issue or a concern and people throw it back that, ah, you're just doing the reefer madness thing. It's, you know, it's, you're just out of control. You don't know what you're talking about. How, is that a problem that there are a lot of people who seemingly say that any criticism, any questions are just being old school, old fashioned and not really seeing where we're going with this? It is challenging. I think that it, it can feel out of step and easy to dismiss nowadays. You know, our perspective really is that we're not pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis. We're pro-evidence. And I think that what we try to emphasize is um, the, the public, consumers, whoever it might be, needs to know what the data tell us and, and what the research tells us, because it's, it is a complicated message. It's not black and white. Um, but what we do know is that there are some real risks, um, and uh, in some cases there may be some real benefits in medical context, but it, 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 it's something that requires uh, critical thinking about because it's not completely benign. And even though, um, you know, reefer madness may seem like an extreme version, uh, th- there is still reason to be cautious. Well, I don't know if it's a colleague of yours, but a professor at Mac, Dr. Christina Grant, was quoted in the Globe and Mail today, and she says one in seventeen, one in seven teens, not one in seventeen, one in seven teenagers who start using cannabis will develop a cannabis use disorder. Is she correct? Because those num- that number seems very high. 
That number is high, but I, I do know Dr. Grant, and um, what, what we know is that in general, and this applies to, to teens too, is between, between 1 in 10 and 1 in 20 individuals who use cannabis over the course of their life will develop uh, a cannabis use disorder, and, and that, that completely squares with her number there. And what does that mean? What is a cannabis use disorder? Okay, so this is a really important point, and I'm glad you asked me, Scott. So cannabis use disorder is a psychiatric diagnosis that basically refers to cannabis addiction. And a lot of people think that actually you can't become addicted to cannabis. And that's one of the, the myths that we're really trying to uh, debunk via the DeGroot Center. The reality is you can become addicted. Most people don't. That's another reality. Uh, and the rates are lower than for other drugs. That's another reality. Those are two... Um, positive pieces of information, but the reality is it, it's a real condition. It happens, and uh, as Dr. Grant alluded to, it happens more frequently than a lot of people realize. And unfortunately, um, th- this kind of um, myth even extends sometimes to the healthcare system, where people may not ask a person about their cannabis use or may not think that regular cannabis use reflects addiction, um, because they don't think of it as a hard drug, for example. Um, but the reality is, for some people, their use over time goes from being occasional to frequent to compulsive and can be really very harmful, especially people who are uh, suffering from other psychiatric conditions, too. So that, that's, uh, her, her data are accurate. I would say. Well, and logic would suggest, and and you may disagree with this, but logic would suggest that when something becomes legal, more people will use it. Maybe not long-term, but more people will try it. And if that's the case, would my logic then follow that if the number is one in seven or one in 10 who are having a problem and we suddenly increase the number of people using it, that the number of people having problems is going to go up as well? It certainly is possible, and that's one of the, the, the things that we're monitoring most closely, how this change in uh, legal status changes the attitudes that people have towards cannabis and how much they use, because I think that it's an entirely credible hypothesis that use levels could go up, and uh, exactly as you described, if use levels go up in general, uh, then we would expect that people who are misusing would also go up. But we have to be careful, because... That's a prediction. It's not a guaranteed outcome. And depending on where you look in terms of um, other uh, uh, environments where cannabis has been made legal, the changes have not always been substantial. And, um, for example, uh, in some of the U.S. states, there have not been radical increases in the amount of cannabis use. Now, there have been uh, changes that are pretty concerning, like increases in the proportion of people, for example, who have cannabis in their system uh, in automobile fatalities, for example. But uh, on, on the whole, there haven't been, you know, doubling of the rates or really dramatic changes. Uh, and so I think we have to be cautious about what we assume will happen after legalization. More than anything, we have to measure it. We have to uh, look to uh, Statistics Canada and Health Canada and to our academic institutions to be doing critical studies that will tell us how has legalization changed the landscape and has it in fact led to more people who are having problems with cannabis. We only have 10 seconds. I'm sorry for squeezing on time here, but the uh, roundtable is tomorrow from 4 till 6 p.m. It's at 1 James Street North, which is the McMaster Center for Continuing Education. If somebody wants to go, is it open to the public? 
It's open to the public. Please do register at cannabisresearch.mcmaster.ca. Uh, we're very fortunate that we have uh, stakeholder groups from around the country coming to have a very open, candid discussion of cannabis legalization. Will it be good? Will it be bad? How do we measure success and failure? And so uh, we really do encourage the public to come and participate. There'll be an extended period for open discussion and questions. That is Dr. James McKillop from the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. Always appreciate you coming on and doing this. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Scott. Take care. Uh, and if you can't make it to that and you want to still watch it, you can stream it. Again, it's cannabisresearch.mcmaster.ca, and from there you'll be able to find the live stream and see. It'll be interesting stuff because there's going to be a lot of experts who are there talking about this issue. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the segment you're going to be talking about with your friends tomorrow. Let me just give you that up front. I've been looking forward to doing this one for several days now. Because if you think that universities have gone a little bit off the rails in ways in recent years, as they've become in some cases more about social justice, it seems, than about good scholarship and good science, well, you're, you're not alone. And so three academics, three liberal academics, and that's key, that these are not right-wingers looking to take down the glass towers, uh, they recently attempted to prove how willing academic journals would be to accept papers for publication if they hit the correct political and philosophical notes, no matter how outrageous these papers were. So they argued that grievance studies, I've got air quotes going with that, which are those fields of study that focused on the oppressed and therefore they fight back against anyone with real or perceived privilege, they'd become so radicalized that they'd pretty much accept any kind of paper if they said what the folks behind those studies and reading those studies said what they wanted to hear. So these three academics wrote 20 absurd papers with ridiculous conclusions. Some examples. Uh, Western astronomy is sexist and imperialist, so physics departments should study feminist astronomy. There was a paper about how dog parks are a petri dish for canine rape culture by asking if dogs suffer oppression based on perceived gender. <laughs> and my personal favorite, a rewriting of a part of Mein Kampf, which was Hitler's manifesto, replacing Jews with men for feminist studies. Um, it is remarkable. One of those three authors joins me now. His name is James Lindsay. James, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Scott. Uh, first of all, reading this, and I've read various versions of the story in various publications. Excellent, brilliant work. Congratulations on doing this because it's uh, it needs to be done, this kind of thing. Well, thanks. We thought so, too. Uh, though I'm guessing that not everybody that has gotten in touch with you has shared my view about what you did. I'm guessing there's been a few people who have fought back against the idea. Uh, yeah, not everybody's happy about this, uh, to, put it, <laughs> to put it briefly. Um, but many people are. It's been really encouraging to hear how many people are coming out of the woodwork and thanking us or saying we think there's a silent majority of academics and silent majority of people outside of the academy who are sick of this and that they want they want they want these topics studied but they want them studied right they want pushback on these fields which they've succeeded in avoiding for decades and there there's been more encouragement than discouragement so far and i think that's great 
Did when you guys started doing this, did did you really think that this was going to work, or did you think that as soon as you sent off your first couple papers, that somebody was going to say, "Come on, you're you're having me on here. We're being punked." Nope, we did not think this was going to work. Um, Peter and I were the only two. Helen joined us a little bit later when we first set out, and Peter guessed we would get two papers, maybe accepted in low level journals, and I thought we would get zero. I had no hope that this project would succeed, but I thought I'd give it my best go anyway. And when I said off the top in the introduction that you came up with absurd, ludicrous, like over the top, these were over the top absurd ideas, but they had the right catchphrases and keywords that would hit the, hit the marks. Just so people understand, um, in your dog park study about how dog parks are rape culture in a Petri dish kind of thing, uh, you claimed to have partially done this by inspecting the genitals of 10,000 dogs while asking their owners about the dog's sexuality. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, asking the owners about their own sexual Oh, oh, okay. Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> All right. Indeed, either um, way, either way, it, it's, I mean, it's, and then, and then as I watched part of a video about this, you were laughing because the concern was not about whether or not the numbers were right. It was how you went about doing the research. Yeah, um, there are some pretty scary things in that that article, actually, that we wrote. There's stuff like calling dog parks and nightclubs so-called rape-condoning spaces, as if that's how they operate. There was a suggestion that the only reason we can't put men on leashes and yank them around by those leashes is because it's not politically feasible, there was a suggestion that shocking men by screaming at them is the equivalent of putting a, uh, a shock collar on them. And the idea essentially was that we wanted to justify an argument that says we can train men like we train dogs to minimize rape culture. And rather than zeroing in on that or the fact that we decided to analyze our data through a lens of black feminist criminology, which makes no sense, they <laughs> focused in on whether or not we were respecting the dog's privacy while we looked at their genitals. <laughs> And, you know, we laugh because it's so ludicrous. And yet when these things came back, these places that you were sending them to, these publications were not fly-by-night, no-name organizations. These were, these were res- in their fields, respected publications. Yes. The, the journal that took the dog park paper um, is the 13th most influential feminist and women's studies journal overall by one rating system. It's ninth by another. It is the leading journal of what's called feminist geography, which is where feminism tries to talk about geographical topics in specific. So it's impacting the broader field of geography there. These are not small publications. That publication is, in fact, in its 25th year. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary. And um, they actually named our dog park study as so good that it was going to be one of the papers that was honored as the best of the year and uh, (laughs) typical of actually to be put forward as as an example of great feminist geography. So when you start getting for that one or others, when you start getting letters back, acceptance letters saying, you know what, Uh, your work has been peer reviewed now and it is exceptional research. It is terrific scholarship. We would like to publish it. You must've almost fallen off your chair with shock. In some cases, I did, or jumped up anyway, uh, as you can see in the video that we put out when we revealed our uh, project to the world. Um, yeah, it was very much like that. Uh, at one point, one of our papers, uh, the one that's probably least easy to talk about on air, the one about um, sex toys and transphobia, that one, one of the peer reviewers called it a important contribution to knowledge, which I couldn't believe. Um <laughs> It was really some shocking stuff that came back. 
Does And I want to get into what this means. Well, we've got to take a break in a minute. I want to find out what this means and why this is a problem, because it's silly, and it shows a, a huge gap in the, in the system and in the studies. But you, just to be clear, you, had, you and the others had r- intentionally written these to be as easy to catch as ludicrous as possible, correct? Yeah, in most cases. Uh, I think at least one of the papers, the one that about feminist philosophy, was made to be a bit more subtle. I think it's legitimately feminist philosophy, so you can let let uh, your listeners and yourself decide what that says about feminist philosophy. That I think it really is that. But in most cases, yes, the dog park paper in particular, the sex toys paper in particular, were, were made as ridiculous as possible. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. James, the sad part about this, we laugh about what the topics are. We laugh about how ludicrous they are. We laugh that these things actually got accepted. But the sad part about this, and I think the frustrating part to a lot of people who work in academia, and I'm sure for you as well, is that just by telling people what they wanted to hear, it seemed that anything was accepted, which doesn't seem like science at all. It seems like just sort of clinging to some kind of dogma or backing up what you already believe. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly the opposite of science. It's it's being able to forward prejudice and opinion as though it's fact, and then using the academic apparatus that, that's working within these fields to kind of do the equivalent of money laundering with ideas, calling it idea laundering, to make them look like these, these opinions and prejudices are, are actually knowledge. And then they get taken up by policymakers and corporate HR departments and so on. Okay, so stop there because I want to go through this because this is actually what happened. So your paper, let's say, for example, and it could have happened if you had never spoken up at the end and said, hey, by the way, you've been hoaxed. Some of these ideas would have what, been absorbed then into studies in different courses at university perhaps? Oh, sure, certainly. Um, Several peer reviewers' comments indicated that it would uh, that our papers would serve as excellent courses for undergraduates or graduate students in universities to teach them about masculinity or sexuality. Okay, and so once they've been taught that, then it becomes an established factor, an established basis for a belief system, and so that is then used when, as you say, they go into workplaces or they go in. So this becomes part of the accepted knowledge base for this area of study. Sure. And a lot of people don't understand how many of the concepts that seem so strange and new in the past few years that have become prominent, like toxic masculinity, that originate within this literature. Toxic masculinity came from Terry Cooper's in 2005, and it built out of uh, Ray Wynn Connell's 1995 idea of hegemonic masculinity, for example. White fragility is one that's all over right now. That's Robin DiAngelo, 2011, and now she's got a book this year about it. And it's kind of taking uh, at least parts of America by storm. So these ideas that are kind of fueling the left half of the culture war, not to say the whole culture war is the left, seem to be coming out of these academic departments. And unless some kind of a check is put on that, I don't think that it's, it's going to lead us in a good direction. So you use some of those phrases, the toxic masculinity, for example, uh, that oh, yeah. probably then came from some sort of paper that was written. Do we? Do you then have some doubts? Do you then say to yourself, "Well, wait a second, but now this word has been, this phrase has been used as part of the common culture, the common vernacular in our society." But is there any actual basis to this, or is this just something that someone wrote in a paper that didn't really get checked but got accepted because they wanted to believe it? 
You know, un- honestly, that's the question. This becomes very difficult. After having spent a year doing this, I feel very much like there are kernels of truth and then a lot of BS stacked on top of it with this stuff. And my problem, after having written our own papers and seeing how they went through the process, what happened to them in review and how they were accepted, is that I no longer know how to trust what parts of this stuff are legitimate and which parts aren't. And if I can't trust it after being well-versed in it for a year, it's, you know, how does how can a policymaker who doesn't have time to look into this carefully or an HR manager or a media consultant, how do they know, you know, which is legitimate and which is just some kind of a prejudice that got pushed through the system? But I'm also guessing that many of the people who go into these courses, who study these topics to get a degree in this, are eager to hear these kind of things because it validates many of the things that they believe. And now if we can have a published paper behind it, it just shows further that what we believe is true, even though many of those things or some of those things may have been based on things that were fraudulent or false to begin with. Right. I mean, how often have you heard something like, oh, there's a study that says the toxic masculinity is a big problem, for example, or there's a study that shows that, and then fill in the blank with any of these things. If it's coming out of some departments, you know, maybe that's trustworthy. I think most academic departments are good. But if it's coming out of departments that have subscribed to this method that we're calling grievance studies, which in the literature is called critical constructivism, I have no idea how to trust it. There have been, and we only have a few seconds left here, there have been some people, some of your critics, I've seen it on social media, who say, listen, if you did this in any area of science, you would be able to slip some through. If you did this in physics, in astronomy, wherever, do this kind of thing, you'll get some of these papers published. Do you believe that? Nope. Not a bit of it. Why? Because we exploited intentional, political, uh, epistemological, for a $5 word, and uh, ethical biases that we saw as commonplace in grievance studies fields in order to do that. Is anything going to change? And we, again, we're out of time, unfortunately. It, do you think anything's going to change from this, or are they just people just going to circle the wagons and say, you guys are the bad guys for doing something that they'll claim is dishonest, and we'll just carry on? We hope so. I think a new conversation that hasn't been able to take place so far has begun, and that's an encouraging first step. It is a fantastic piece of work. It really is. I would encourage anybody to go look it up. All you have to look up is Dog Park Study. I'm sure in Google that will take you to 25 different stories on this. I know The Atlantic had a great piece on it. Others did too. Uh, James, excellent, excellent work and a fantastic talking point. Thanks for taking time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me grab Bubba O'Neill and bring our buddy on. Hey, how are you tonight, sir? You know, Scott. At this moment, I'm just I'm feeling rather proud of. You know, it just I just did a sports report, obviously on you know on CH. Yep, just got off the air. Yep, just got off the air, and you know, obviously, there's you know you talk about the Leafs, you know, you know what they're doing, and Morgan Riley, you know, leading the league in points. Raptors are playing in Montreal, you know, spreading their sort of Canadian seed, which is kind of cool. But also in the newscast was obviously you know talking about Joe Razzo. You know, longtime Hamiltonian taking on a big, you know, job with the Canadian League Basketball League. You know, uh, the Thai Cats making picking up Terrell Sink Field today. The Greg Knox situation in terms of the MAC head coach who's been on administrative leave, and then the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. And it just made me think, boy, we got a lot going on here, right in our own little community. 
I was down at the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame today for the announcement, and it's always to me it's always one of the great things because it it, it was something that we needed for a long, long, long time. And nine years ago, they finally created it, and. The, the folks that went in today, uh, it was M.M. Robinson, who obviously was a former spec sports editor who created the Commonwealth Games, originally the British Empire Games. It was uh, Don Southern, who was a player for the Ticats and then a, a coordinator and then the head coach. It was, uh, uh, who, who else am I thinking of here? It was um, Murray. Peter Della Riva, yeah, former Montreal Alouette, longtime great player, Hall of Famer, had his number retired. Murray Oliver. Uh, the second highest scoring Hamilton hockey player of all time behind Dave Anderchuk. And it was I the did, night I didn't know I didn't know he played so long. He played a long time for four different teams and, and had a great career. And it was uh, the 1965 Stony Creek Little League team that went to the finals of the Little League World Series. The only Canadian team ever to get that far. And I'm thinking to myself, nine years in, if we still have five like that, tells you something about the depth of the people who have represented this city over the years in sports. Well, I extended that thought at the end of sports today, and I just kind of said to the, the my my feelings was, you know, obviously I'm getting older, and I'm looking at all the great athletes that we're seeing out there right now, and some, you know, ones that are you know in the midst of their career. I can only imagine what that hall will be like 20 years from now. One of the things that I wrote for tomorrow, it'll be in tomorrow's paper, it'll be online, if it's not now, it will be shortly, uh, is to that point. And there have not been a ton of women who have been inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame yet. And uh, that is not, to me, a sexist thing. There simply were not that many women. The women didn't have the same opportunities in sports once upon a time that men did. So it's natural that if you are going back 40, 50, 60 years, there will be fewer. But to your point... We are probably maybe a decade away from some classes of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame that will be largely female because of the opportunities they've had now. Absolutely. I mean, you just think of the sport of basketball alone and the great basketball players that have gone on to do some amazing things for a national team and in the NCAA. And I'm not just talking just about Kia Nurse. I mean, it's... Shona Thorburn was drafted into the WNBA and played for Canada for a long time. There's been a lot of them. Go to soccer, Melissa Tancredi is going to be in there. Uh, Hockey, um, Laura Fortino is eventually a shoe-in. Probably, I mean, Renata Fast would be as well. Uh, Sarah Nurse is heading that direction. I mean, there's... And and we're just off the top of our heads doing this. There's going to be an awful, awful lot of them. Anyway, uh, it's a great point, and I appreciate you bringing that up because it is um, it, it is a valuable point, and it's it's a great thing that we do this in the city finally because so many other cities do it, and it's great that they do it. Let me go to baseball for a minute, but it's not just baseball because it, it, this starts in baseball. What I wanted to ask you about today and talk to you about because it's this this issue begins tonight here. It's a launching off point, but it's a broader story. If you watch the Red Sox-Yankees game last night, by the end of the game, CeCe Sabathia, the pitcher for the Yankees, was hot about the home plate umpire, Angel Hernandez, or Angel Hernandez, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, He is a guy who, by most people, and if you go on social media, even former players were chiming in last night saying, this guy is like the worst umpire in baseball. We hate this guy. He's horrible. CeCe Sabathia said, this guy should not be anywhere near playoff games. Um, Here's some of the things he said. He's bad. I don't understand why he's doing these games. It's sad he's doing these games. It's crazy. He's always bad. He's a bad umpire. We know, Baba, that CC Sabathia is going to be fined for this. 
right? We know that that's going to be the case. The Major League Baseball is not going to let him not be fined for making these comments. Well, anytime I think you're generally critical of any type of official in any sport, you're generally, you know, you're, you're, you know at some point you're going to have to open up your, your, your wallet. <laughs> so that's my question. Should that be the case? Should, should we not, if an umpire, a referee, uh, whatever, if they are bad, why should we not be able to say they're bad? Well, and that's the funny thing is because that sport that you're actually speaking of in basketball, in, I'm sorry, baseball in particular, is one that is, is, allows um, you know, players and especially managers to be caustic, to have face-to-face discussions that sometimes turn into very heated arguments. So what's the difference? If you're going to be that, you know, you know, basically sometimes within two inches of each other screaming at the top of your voice in front of sometimes 40 and 50,000 people, what are a couple extra words to the press? Gonna, what's the difference there? Because I can guarantee you, and you and I have both been on the, the playing surface for many of those arguments, the words that are coming out of managers' mouths are generally far worse than some of the critical comments we've heard from coaches and players and to the media about officials. I just, I, I don't see why, and look, I think if you watch baseball, now that we have instant replay and we have reviews and all this kind of stuff, and we find out that they are correct 98, 99% of the time, like they, they do an amazing job, and they really do. There's very few officials in professional sports that consistently blow it. Uh, in very few, because if you're one of those, generally you're run out of the sport, you're demoted, you're gone before you can get that reputation. But I just look at this and I think, what would be the what would be the problem of a player saying after the game? I mean, you can say the other team's pitcher stunk. You can say the other goalie was a sieve if you want to. You can say my coach is a moron. You can do you, what's why not? I'll be allowed to say, you know what? I think that umpire blew it. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't see what's wrong with that. And I and I don't get it too. And in this particular case, Hernandez is one of those officials, uh, some of those umpires, where there it, verbally, uh, there have been many players that have you know, as you said, spoke about you know this guy isn't up to par. I'm actually surprised, quite honestly, based on some of the missed calls I've seen from him, that particular umpire throughout this season, and maybe even dating back for a couple of seasons. I'm surprised he earned. Because generally officials, basketball, hockey, they're all graded throughout the season. And the better they are, the longer they get to officiate throughout the postseason. And I'm actually surprised that that official got to this level. I mean, we're at the ALDS now. But do you, you know? think that he actually earned that or the fact that he has sued Major League Baseball because they haven't promoted him, that Major League no. Baseball is creating a case for themselves to say, look, we gave him opportunities <laughs> and he blew it. Well, you 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 could be totally correct there. I mean, and that opens up a whole new set of you know of uh, discussions there too. Because you're right. I mean, uh, what's going on there? And I know he's been very. I mean, look at there. So he's been very vocal in complaining about his status as a, as an umpire. So again, if if you can't criticize, I mean, maybe he should keep things in house as well too, because he was more than willing to go public with his criticisms of of the fact that you know of, that he should be getting more games, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I I, I just I, you're either you're good or you're not, right? At that at that position, and why you're kept around, you know, after years and years of players and managers, and hey, I believe quite honestly that in any sport, deep down, they don't always say it, they don't always show it. But the players 
and the coaches appreciate the efforts of the of the officials. And you're right, you know, um, with the exception of tennis, which has got the Hawkeye thing, which is probably the best thing for the sport. Overall, officials are, as you said, 95% right. When, when I coached kids hockey, and I was not a perfect coach, believe me, that there were a couple times that I yelled something and I wish I could go back because you get in a moment of you know heat or whatever else. and you. But by and large, almost every time, in my mind, and I, I think this is consistent with most athletes and coaches, no matter what level you get to, as long as you see the officials putting in the effort, trying to make the right call, being in position, hustling to be in position too, I think almost everybody goes, you know what, I'm okay with that. And if he misses one or she misses one, but they are doing everything they can to be a good official, I think that guys or the women, but usually guys, most of the pro sports are guys, cut the officials some slack if a missed call happens. I really do. And I think there's sort of an unwritten rule too that sometimes when officials miss calls, that somehow, some way, you get you get a makeup call because they know. Because they know. Yes, because deep down you're right. They know, and they might go harsh on someone or be a, you know particularly picky on a particular you know type of defense or contact or a call. Just to, as you said, to get that makeup call. And for the most part, you know, as a manager or a coach, you generally know that's coming, or a player, you know, that's coming. But anyway, to this guy's point, I just I just don't see. I don't know. I and I don't watch every baseball game. A few do, but I have heard, read, seen enough from Major League Baseball players and coaches and managers to indicate to me that this there's something wrong with this fella. Well, and, let's uh, go back to another example for a second because many people will remember nineteen. I don't know what year in two thousand ten. There was a uh, a guy, Andres Galarraga, not Andres Galarraga, Galarraga, last name was Galarraga, I can't remember his first name now. Uh, Armando Galarraga was pitching a perfect game, and there were two outs in the ninth inning. Oh, yes. And the first base umpire, a guy by the name of Jim Joyce, botched the call at first base and blew the guy's perfect game. It was before there was instant replay, they couldn't challenge it, and it mucked up the the perfect game. The worst, I mean, other than maybe two outs in the World Series in a deciding game, the worst time to gaff it. And I remember, and you probably do too, Bubba, after the game, Jim Joyce, the umpire who blew it, went into the umpire's room, saw the replay, came out to face the music with the media in tears. Yep. In tears that he had made this mistake. And you want to know something? I have never, since that time, I have never heard a player be critical of Jim Joyce mm-hmm. because first of all, he acknowledged his mistake and we all make mistakes and the players certainly make mistakes. And secondly, he was upfront about it. And the third thing was he looked like he cared and he wasn't being defensive. Yep. And I look at that and I go, you know what? That guy has the, I think has so much credit now in the bank of goodwill with the players on the field that they go, we know this guy cares. No, he absolutely came clean. In fact, you know, I thought he looked distressed, quite honestly, Absolutely. When, he, when, when he admitted to what he did. And I thought what was even more neat about that moment, not to get too deep into it, was the fact that he said that he not only blew the call, that he took away the player's moment of, of, of a perfect game, and that he robbed him of that because of his error, and admitted to that. And that's a Come on, we're, we're talking pro sports here, and I don't care if you're an official, a coach, or a player. There's a lot of ego in our business. And for him to stoop to that level, uh, to admit that he had made a big mistake 
was, you know, quite humanizing, quite knowledgeable. Sure it is. And I don't think, as a result, I don't think that if Jim Joyce was doing the game yesterday and CC Sabathia was pitching and he thought the strike zone was being pinched or whatever else, I don't think are, uh, that CC Sabathia says the same things about Jim Joyce. I really don't. Because, well, he because he earned, he, he earned, earned respect. He earned respect. But if you're an official that consistently is abrasive, consistently seems to blow calls, and, and now, as you say, has picked a fight with Major League Baseball and someone is critical of him, like, I, I, I just, I don't see where the problem with that is. I see a problem if after every single game, players are dumping on the officials. If after every game you're saying, oh, that guy stunk, every official stink, <laughs> then it becomes an excuse and a problem. But if a guy clearly has been bad and, and you're not saying something offensive about it, I don't know why players in sports, because they always get fined. I don't know why they can't say what they, what they feel. I don't know. Anyway, I, speaking, I, it, it makes no sense to me. But I mean, it is the way it is right now because you're right. Any any type of conversation outside of the the playing field of whatever sport you're involved in generally means you're going to get uh, hit in the pocketbook, as they say. Speaking of things I don't understand in sports, we got a few more minutes for this one. Mark Visentin retired last week. He was the goalie from Waterdown. He played a game for the Phoenix Coyotes once upon a time. He played for Team Canada in the World Junior Tournament back in Buffalo yes. in 2010. No, 2011. That was the game where Canada was beating the Soviet, the Rush, the Soviets, the Russians three nothing going into the third period, and Canada gave up five goals and lost. Here's my question. And I wrote this today, but I'm going to bring it to you as well. Mark Visenton was the goalie for that game, and he is the guy who is now forever the face of that failure. He is the guy who, when you think of that game, people go, oh, that was Mark Visenton. And what I don't understand is I went back yesterday as I was writing about his retirement and talking to him. I went back and watched the highlights of that game, all the goals. There wasn't one terrible goal that he gave up. In every single case, the players in front of him had broken down, allowing the Russians to have a great scoring opportunity. Now, how come, and I know he's the goalie, and I know he's the guy who stands in front of the net, and if they make him, if he makes a mistake, they stop the game and turn on a red light and point at him. But how come he is the guy, or any other goalie, wears a game like that, and you can't tell me one of the skaters who was on the ice who screwed up their part, they get away with this without anyone remembering their name. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's unfortunately in that sport, particular sport, you're looked at as the last line of defense. And when things break down in front of you from a forward perspective or a forward doesn't get back and then somehow an opposing forward gets through the defense, you're expected to make that save. And unfortunately, that is the nature of that position and the pressure um, of that position, you know, and I, in my opinion, other than quarterback in, in, in the National Football League, I believe that playing a goaltender is the next most pressure position because all eyes are on you. Uh, and when you make a mistake, sometimes the crowd, especially in hockey, the, if you're in an opposing building, the crowd can actually, and I don't care what players say, they say they try to shut out all the, the white You can't do that. People. It's impossible when someone's yelling your name in, you know, in a sarcastic fashion. Uh, because you let in a bad goal, or even worse is when you're on, in your own home building and you're getting the Bronx cheer from your own home your own crowd. A hard, hard position to play, and you know you're, you tip your cap to guys like that. Um, 
you know, even field goal kickers in football. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're rarely hear or see of them. And when they're called upon, if you miss a kick. Scott uh, Norwood. Norwood. How about Mason Crosby of the Green Bay yes. Packers this week? Missing four field goals. A, you know, a, a veteran, experienced kicker missing four field goals and an extra point. You total up the points and the, the margin of uh, defeat that they had to the Detroit Lions. Had he hit those kicks, which he normally would have, because they weren't long-distance kicks, Green Bay win the football game. And even with that, though... That's part, That's a partially good example, the kickers. And they certainly stand alone like that, for sure, or a pitcher or something in baseball. But with with the thing with the goalie and with the entire team in front of him breaking down defensively, it would be more of an example if Mason Crosby, on four consecutive kicks, had a hand get in the way and got his kick blocked. Yeah. And then you said, well, it was his fault. All his kicks well, were blocked, I, but the I, line I, broke down. I'm, I'm saying more so and that he's getting blamed, that Mason Crosby gets blamed for the loss. But does anyone remember or at least bring up the fact that uh, Aaron Rodgers looked at as maybe the, the best quarterback in the National Football League? Does anyone bring up the fact that he fumbled the ball twice? Yeah. No, it's, I, 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 when I was redoing this story yesterday, and I went back because, again, the, the, the story that you have in your head, the memory you have in your head is, oh, he, it, he's the guy who everyone talks about. He must have been awful. He wasn't awful. I mean, there was two goals where there were three Russians standing in front of the net with no Canadians. Yeah. And you're saying, wait a second, how does that guy, and again, it doesn't have to be this particular game. Pick any game where a, a team loses, and it's the goalie often, unless they're standing on their head, it's the goalie that gets blamed for it. And boy, it's, it, it just, in this particular case, looking back at his career, it, it seems like such an unfair thing for him to be saddled with that game as his legacy in the eyes of many people. And even in his, within his sport, where people are much smarter than people like ourselves who are in the media, even within the sport, he's got to wear that. Where people generally give those guys more of a break. You know, I mean, hey, look back. I mean, I, I mean, a perfect example for someone who, you know, had an accomplished or still is in the midst of a very accomplished National Hockey League career is Marc-Andre Fleury. The puck going off his head and into yep. the net. Right? He'll always, for that particular uh, Olympic year, or uh, sorry, World Championship year, he's got to kind of wear that. Or where he shot it into his own net. Where he shot it off his defenseman's shin pads into his own net in the World Juniors, Crosby. Yep. Yep. Uh, here's, here's your skill testing question as I let you go. Tell me one other guy, one skater who played for Canada in that game. In that particular game? In that game, in that, in that Canada-Mark-Visenton game where Canada lost to the Russians, because this is my point. No one else wears this. Tell me one other Canadian who was in that game. Uh, I'm trying to think. If you, what's, give me the year again. 2011. Shuck, that's good. See? <laughs> the point is not for you to actually give an answer, because you could probably, if you really thought about it, come up with one down the road, but it just says something about the fact that one guy wears that whole thing, and I, I as I was looking at it, I thought it was just, in retrospect, totally unfair. By the way, every other player, every skater on Team Canada in that tournament eventually played in the NHL. Every is, skater. Is Morgan Riley on that team? Morgan Riley was not on that team. 
but that but there was guys like Ryan Ellis, oh, Sean yes. Couturier, Zach Cassian, Braden Shen, oh. Marcus Felino, uh, Cody Eakin, Brett Connolly, Carter Ashton. They're all in the league. Tyson Berry, Eric Gabranson, Dylan Olson, Simon Dupre, on and on and on. Jaden Schwartz, I could go on. Every single guy played in the NHL. Not one of them ever gets asked about that loss. Wow. There you go. So... Tough position. Unfortunately, when you accept to play that position, you know the pressures that come with it. And unfortunately, you're totally right. Because just like you said, Scott Norwood, no one will remember how many game-winning kicks he had to get the Buffalo Bills to the Super Bowl. Just, the, just the miss. People will just remember wide right. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can catch him tonight. He'll be doing the news and the weather at 11 o'clock. Thanks for the time. As always, sir. Thank you very much. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.